Support for the Legislative Gazette comes from New York State United Teachers, working to support students, educators, and public schools as the center of their communities with Public Schools Unite Us initiative and United University Professions, representing 37,000 academic and professional employees at SUNY campuses and teaching hospitals across New York State. Frederick E. Cole, President, UUPinfo.org. New York Governor Kathy Hochul's new budget plan holds the line on spending increases, but it might hit some headwinds in the state legislature. The Legislative Gazette's Karen DeWitt reports. While Hochul is a Democrat and both houses of the legislature are led by Democrats, the governor's budget is not guaranteed to be an easy sell to the Senate and Assembly. One item expected to meet resistance is the governor's proposal to keep state aid flat for some suburban and rural school districts. Hochul and her budget office managed to close a $4.3 billion projected deficit by tamping down the rate of spending growth in education and other areas. It's a lot more pleasant to say yes to everybody, but now we're called upon to make the tough decisions. Hochul is proposing an increase of $825 million for schools, but that's far less than the record spending over the previous two years. And she wants to funnel much of those funds to the state's poorest schools, many of them in New York City's. The plan would end the decades-long tradition known as Hold Harmless. That ensures that no school district, even the state's wealthiest, will ever get less money in the state budget than it did in the previous year. As much as we may want to, we are not going to be able to replicate the massive increases of the last two years. No one could have expected the extraordinary jumps to recur, in aid to recur annually. The Republican minority leader in the Senate, Robert Ort, says some GOP senators who represent suburban and rural districts object to the proposal. He says he believes it's no coincidence that the school districts that are less likely to receive cuts are represented by Democrats in the legislature. It's all rural and suburban districts that are going to see cuts in spending, in some cases drastically, and not the cities. And, and that, to me, really smacks of, of hypocrisy, but it also smacks of partisanship. Ort predicts that some Democratic senators who represent suburban districts will also be opposed to the idea. If the governor's plan is taken at face value, I have to believe that my colleagues in the other side of the aisle are going to have something to say about this. Advocates for school funding who have been closely allied with Democrats in the legislature, including the New York State United Teachers Union, are also against ending Hold Harmless. In a statement, NYSET President Melinda Person says the critical need to consistently support our students and educators should not vary with the fluctuations in our state tax revenue. Senate Democratic Majority Leader Andrea Stewart-Cousins sought to minimize any public friction over the proposal and other items in the budget, including the governor's plan to trim $1 billion out of the Medicaid budget. That comes as the state's safety net hospitals say they are nearing financial ruin due to low Medicaid reimbursement rates. Stewart-Cousins says everything will be discussed. We're going to talk about her approaches to, to a lot of things in the budget. That's why this is going to be an exciting 
signing season. We can't wait. <laughs> In a few weeks, the Senate and Assembly will present their own budget counterproposals. Assembly Speaker Carl Hasty says he's not ruling out some changes after he's gone through the plan with his Democratic members. That may include spending increases and raising revenues, possibly through tax increases for the wealthy. In dealing with the members of the conference, I have to see what the spending, the, the wish list is. And then we have to try to see if we have enough revenue to match this. Any proposals for tax hikes will also create a budget roadblock. Hochul has already said she will not accept any new tax increases, saying New Yorkers' taxes are already high enough. In Albany, I'm Karen DeWitt for the New York Public News Network. New York Governor Kathy Hochul's $233 billion budget proposal is coming under scrutiny from elected officials. The Legislative Gazette's Dave Lucas has more. Hochul's spending plan unveiled in Albany Tuesday looks to close a $4.3 billion deficit with no increase in income taxes and no cuts to programs. Republican State Senator Jim Tedisco of the 44th District gives the governor a bit of praise. One of the positive things is uh, my bill she put into the budget, S. 7688. The legislation comes in response to the September 30th abduction of a nine-year-old girl from Moreau Lake State Park. Tedisco says no security cameras were present when the kidnapping took place. The bill requires New York's 180 state-run parks and campgrounds be equipped with security cameras that can identify the license plate, make, and model of any vehicle entering or exiting the facilities, as well as record the image of any person walking into or out of the grounds. The measure is sponsored in the Assembly by Rotterdam Democrat Angelo Santa Barbara. Tedisco agrees with Hochul that affordability and public safety should be the focus, but disagrees with parts of the plan. The best way to define it was uh, Hochul's hocus-pocus, because she would have to be the sleight-of-hand magician as good as Houdini to balance this particular budget in the way she has presented it. What she admitted is we have uh, $4 billion of increased spending. That's a part of the reason why people are leaving the state of New York, because of taxes, to get that $4 billion of increased spending. But we also have a $4.3 billion deficit. That's $8.3 billion that's not accounted for right now. She'd have to pull the biggest rabbit out of a hat, financial rabbit out of a hat. Meantime, Democratic Assemblyman Phil Steck of the 110th District is skeptical that programs Hochul promotes in the budget proposal can be funded without any increase in revenue. So in 1981, we started rebating the proceeds of the stock transfer tax back to Wall Street. And we are giving up 14 to 16 billion dollars of revenue by doing that. And I personally just do not see how you can have a truly progressive budget on economic issues without ending that practice. The the problem that we have is New Yorkers. If you you can't raise income tax because the wealthy New Yorkers do have the ability to leave to avoid that tax, but they can't avoid something like the stock transfer tax because all the major securities markets are in New York. You can move to Tennessee, but you still have to trade in New York. So I think we have a big budget hole, and this budget is not doing anything to fill it. Steck finds food insecurity and rising housing costs concerning. I've not seen any of the programs that the governor talks about 
that uh, have really been successful in addressing the issue. For example, I don't think putting an end to exclusionary zoning is going to suddenly create a massive market in low-cost housing. You know, in a lot of things, you know, our economy is like a democracy, but it's a democracy where some people have a lot more votes than others. And if you have votes that you can use to buy luxury housing, the market's going to respond to that. The people at the low end don't have enough dollars, don't have enough votes in the system to influence it to produce affordable housing. So you really have to make a commitment to find a way to build it, and I don't see that the governor's initiative is doing that. The city of Albany is in line to receive $15 million in capital funding, which Democratic Mayor Kathy Sheehan appreciates. I will still be at Tin Cup Day because we want to make sure that the funding stays in. I'm so grateful to the governor for really recognizing and acknowledging the case that we've made for many, many years with respect to just basic fairness. Uh, we're the capital. 64% of our property is not taxable. Most of that is owned by the state. And so we are also advocating for a more permanent solution. I don't want the mayor that comes after me to have to continue to have sort of the uncertainty of will it be in the budget or won't it be in the budget. And so we are going to be advocating to make some permanent changes to the way that the state pays us for state-owned property, and I look forward to engaging in that conversation as well. Hochul and fellow Democrats who control the legislature face an April 1st deadline to finalize the budget. For the Legislative Gazette, I'm Dave Lucas. Listening to the Legislative Gazette, a program about New York State government and politics. I'm David Gustina. New York Governor Kathy Hochul once again listed the housing crisis as one of her top concerns in her annual State of the State address. Lawmakers in the Hudson Valley agree the crisis is a danger to local residents, but many disagree with the governor on how to approach it. More from the Legislative Gazette's Jesse King. Now let's get to the most important issue when it comes to affordability. The obscenely high cost of rents and mortgages caused by the unconscionable shortage of housing in New York. The fact that Hochul touched on housing in her speech came as a surprise to some lawmakers, considering the Democrats' extensive plan to build more than 800,000 housing units statewide crumbled in Albany last year. Hochul largely focused on New York City in her address, saying she wants to legalize basement and cellar apartments and resurrect the tax abatement plan 421A, which lawmakers let expire in 2021. Assemblyman Chris Burdick, a Democrat from the 93rd District in Mount Kisco, says housing is one of his main priorities this session, so he was glad to hear it talked about, but he would have liked more specifics. I want to see that there's a plan not just for New York City, but what are the specific actions that would provide for simulating housing growth in the rest of the state. Much of the Hudson Valley is under a housing crisis. The cities of Kingston and Newburgh and the village of Nyack have declared housing emergencies over the past couple of years, opting into rent control via the New York Emergency Tenant Protection Act. A recent report by Hudson Valley Pattern for Progress found that the average single renter cannot afford a one-bedroom apartment in any of the region's nine counties. 
Part of the reason Hochul's housing plan fell through last year is opposition from suburban and rural representatives, who took issue with Hochul's idea to mandate growth to municipalities across the state, as well as a measure that would allow the state to circumvent local zoning officials to get the job done. Burdick is one of those representatives. He'd rather see the state provide incentives and require municipalities to draw up their own plans after assessing their individual housing needs, like the way communities were directed to reimagine policing in 2019. Burdick and Assemblywoman Dana Levenberg, a fellow Democrat from the 95th District in Ossining, have been working on a package of bills they say would preserve local control while complementing other aspects of Hochul's plan. Every municipality needs to step up and do their part and again, it can't all just be on the back of the ones that maybe have more density currently. Like we really need to look at the state as a whole to provide housing for all of those who want to live, work, play and thrive here. Hochul did appear to drop the provision overriding local control in her speech. Burdick says to make affordable housing models work financially, the land practically needs to be acquired for free. And to that end, Hochul says she wants to invest $500 million to construct 15,000 units of housing on sites already owned by the state, like former prisons. Assemblyman Anil Bipan of the 105th District in East Fishkill says he's not a fan of that idea. The Republicans' district is home to the former Downstate Correctional Facility in Fishkill, which was decommissioned in 2022 and promptly identified as a potential site for affordable housing. Bipan says he's spoken with members of the Fishkill Town Board, however, and they're not for it. They do not believe they have the infrastructure. They don't believe they have the ability to expand their community by the hundreds, if not thousands, of new uh, units and residents they're trying to put there. To an extent, Burdick echoes that argument. The areas that we represent, they're not cities with sewer systems. They're not cities that have public water supplies. And those are both significant hurdles in terms of providing affordable housing. Basically, a lot of the Hudson Valley's smaller communities want to remain the way they are now, small. And representatives want municipalities to be able to find their own ways to develop housing that won't drastically change their infrastructure or the density of their communities. Many of the region's lawmakers also agree that the housing crisis is more than just an issue of supply and demand. Simply building housing isn't going to solve it. Assemblyman Jonathan Jacobson of the 104th District in Newburgh says the state should be doing more to make sure renters have stability right now. He's a proponent of good cause eviction legislation, which would protect tenants from price gouging and from being evicted without a legitimate reason. Good cause is another idea that tanked Hochul's housing plan last year, but Jacobson says he doesn't see things moving forward without it. Well, I think there has to be a grand bargain concerning good cause eviction as well as the necessary tax breaks to encourage uh, more housing to be built. In her speech, Hochul listed the housing crisis as a main reason New Yorkers are fleeing the state, not taxes, as some state Republicans argue. Republican Assemblyman Chris Taig of the 102nd District says he doesn't think that statement is entirely true. And Capital Region lawmakers like State Senator Jim Tedisco and Assemblyman Angelo Santa Barbara have introduced a bill that would create a bipartisan commission to study out-migration. But he agrees that housing likely plays a part. Take, for example, the village of Catskill, where Tague says local officials have had trouble getting graduates of nearby Columbia Green Community College to stay and raise families. I mean, you're talking average prices now. Since COVID in rural upstate New York, you're looking at a decent house. You're paying $250,000. Now, you know, how does somebody fresh out of college making forty or $50,000 a year afford a $250,000 house. 
For the Legislative Gazette, I'm Jesse King. Listening to the Legislative Gazette, a program about New York State government and politics. I'm David Gustina. Meanwhile, officials in New York's North Country are expressing mixed thoughts on the governor's $233 billion budget proposal. The Legislative Gazette's Pat Bradley explains. Governor Hochul, a Democrat, highlighted funding for areas including crime and public safety, education, health care, transportation, and climate resiliency. This will be a $233 billion budget accomplished without raising income taxes. We're presenting a solid, balanced budget without cuts or added burdens. Now, there is growth. State spending is up nearly $6 billion over last year. That's a 4.5% increase year over year. And across our major spending categories. This budget proves that you can have fiscal discipline and that can coexist with people-driven progressive policies. North Country Chamber of Commerce President Gary Douglas noted that with past deficits, the state often reverted to raising taxes. Uh, Happily, uh, this governor acknowledged very strongly that that that's simply not an option. We're losing population and capital and income in the state of New York. Raising taxes would actually make that worse in terms of future state revenues by only reinforcing the loss of people and income in the state of New York that's taxable. So we're very pleased to hear her commitment and see the commitment in the budget to uh, no income tax increases of any kind to address the budget deficit. So in an overarching sense, that's number one. Fellow Democrat D. Billy Jones, who represents the North Country's 115th district in the state assembly, is unimpressed with the fiscal plan. Overall, you know, I was disappointed in um, not mentioning a more comprehensive housing approach for uh, the North Country. She had talked a lot about addressing that in New York City and uh, other suburban areas. And I just didn't see any of those uh, specifics for the North Country or more upstate regions. You know, I was disappointed about the prospect of more prison closures. Other areas, uh, I wish there would have been more emphasis on infrastructure for um, rural areas, talking about bridges and uh, roads. Uh, We need more investment in that. During a state Senate Republican conference meeting Wednesday morning, Senator Jake Ashby of the 43rd District, which includes all of Rensselaer County and parts of Washington and Albany counties, said the policies reflected in the proposed budget are driving people out of New York. New York's population loss since 2020 is greater than Vermont's total population. The governor's economic agenda is leaving fewer and fewer people to pay for more and more government. We're national leaders in all the wrong categories, state and local tax burden, the cost of doing business, and unworkable energy regulations. I have a simple message for my colleagues on the other side of the aisle. People are fleeing our state, and that's bad for all of us. We lose representation in Congress, 
we lose federal funding for our veterans, our seniors, and our families, and we lose ideas. We guarantee that the future will happen somewhere else, and I'm urging you to join with us finally to address our state's affordability crisis before it's too late. The new fiscal year begins April 1st. For the Legislative Gazette, I'm Pat Bradley. Listening to the Legislative Gazette, a program about New York State government and politics. I'm David Gustina. This week I sat down with New York State Comptroller Tom DiNapoli, a Democrat, and asked him about the state's rainy day fund, which the governor dipped into to deal with the migrant issue. Yeah, you know, I've given the governor and the legislature credit for finally building up the reserves. So, so the, these are money, some of them are in what we call the statutory reserves which are more restricted in terms of how it can be used and when. And then in the informal reserves, where, where there's a lot of discretion, our view in the controller's office always is more of it should be in the restricted reserves. But all that being said, you know, $19.5 billion in reserves, the highest we've had in many, many years, meant for uh, an economic emergency. And what the governor uh, said in, in, in this budget, dealing with this uh, cost of the asylum seekers and the migrants, trying to, you know, help New York City and some of the other localities, uh, but it's primarily New York City bearing the brunt of this, that she would take a portion, I believe it was 500 million, from the rainy day reserve and use that to help pay for a part of what the state uh, is putting forward. You know, so, you know, the initial reaction is, 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 is that an, enough of an emergency to qualify for, uh, you know, for using some of that rainy day reserve? And I, I think it really gets to a point that we've made uh, in, in the past while we've complimented the governor and legislature for building up the reserves. Uh, what we have been uh, saying are two things. Number one, as I said before, more of it should be in, in the statutorily protected uh, reserves rather than the inform what we would call the informal reserves. And number two, we don't have clear guidelines with those informal reserves as to when you would spend the money. What is it appropriate to spend the money on? You know, saying an economic emergency is kind of a broad, you know, uh, label. So from my perspective, initial reaction, okay, if they want to define this as a, in a sense, a uh, short-term emergency, you know, um, uh, which would, uh, you know, qualify for, for using some of the rainy day reserves, my question would be, um, What's the payback schedule? Meaning, okay, if you're going to dip into the reserve, not a huge amount when you consider the total amount of the reserve, what is the commitment to return that money, to build that reserve back up? So if, if it's an emergency and you're looking for, you know, some float for a while, uh, fine. But I think there should be some very clear commitment that that money is going to be paid back on a very clear timetable. So, you know, I'm hoping this is not, you know, the first crack in moving us backward in terms of, not having the you know the kind of reserves that we should have, because much as the migrant asylum seeker cost wasn't anticipated, it's not like the Great Recession of whatever 12 years ago. It is not like COVID coming out of nowhere and the economy closing down. And I, I, from my perspective, the reserves 
were more built up for those kind of, 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 of truly economic catastrophes. You could certainly say the, emer- the, the migrant asylum seeker is, is, is an urgent situation. I wouldn't put it at the level of what we had to go through with COVID, though. So I think that's where being a bit more clear as to how we define the emergencies that would qualify for using some of that money, and if you're going to dip into that, what's the schedule and timetable mm-hmm. to put that money back and to make the reserves whole again. So that that's obviously some of our preliminary reaction to that. Do you say that because the federal government has such a much larger role in all of this? In that <laughs> well, they... I mean, that's, that's the bigger question. I mean, you're, look, and the governor said this, the Mayor Adams said this, I think everybody's <laughs> been saying it. This really has been a failure at the national level. You know, you, you have, can have different opinions about how to handle border security. Clearly, there are problems there. We have, as a nation, not dealt with immigration reform and pathway to citizenship for years. That's not new. It gets caught up in all the, you know, Washington back and forth, and that's been a tragedy uh, that that hasn't been resolved. And and given all the dislocations happening around the world, and you know, a lot of folks wanting to come to this country, uh, and and having this expense in the federal government not stepping up and, and helping the states and localities deal with this cost. So so there's no question that, you know, Washington needs to do more. I, I don't see that happening anytime soon, the way things are going down there. So we, we are having to contend with it. Look, we, you know, we talk about the numbers, we talk about the dollars. Let's keep in mind, you know, they're also, these are real people, yeah. um, families, children, uh, often, you know, uh, coming out of very troubling situations in their, you know, in their native country, and then, you know, I hate to put it this way, but, you know, ending up on a bus and kind of being dumped in the middle of New York City. Uh, this this is a uh, Some have said it's like real being kidnapped. <laughs> well, it's, it's, it's sad, you know, and I, I, you feel for the kids, you know. They end up Absolutely. in a shelter, they end up in a school, then they, they, they have to leave the shelter, they go to another school. I mean, you know, you compound the heartbreak of what this all is, uh, you know, and I, I just think when, when we're debating the cost and the expenses appropriately, we you know, we should. Obviously, we're always looking at cost and expense in our office, but let's not totally forget the, the human dimension of this. So it is a failure at the federal level, and but I just don't see any immediate relief, so we've got to contend with those with those short-term costs and managing you know, managing this influx. And, and obviously that's that's been a uh, less than perfect situation so far. That's New York State Comptroller Tom DiNapoli. And that about does it for this week's show. The Legislative Gazette is a production of WAMC Public Radio. We had help from the New York Public Radio Network. You can listen to the Legislative Gazette anytime at wamcpodcast.org or anywhere you get your podcast. Look for program number 2403. And join us again next week at this same time. For more news on New York State government and politics, for the Legislative Gazette, I'm David Gustina. Support for the Legislative Gazette comes from United University Professions, representing 37,000 academic and professional employees at SUNY campuses and teaching hospitals across New York State. Frederick E. Cole, President. UUPinfo.org.